to you all, it's Molly here. Welcome to this week's episode of In Fairness Inquire, Roscommon Artists, a special series of our podcast which is dedicated to interviewing astounding creative artists that are based here at home in Roscommon. In these interviews, we're going to be talking to actors, theatre makers, drama facilitators, comedians, writers, directors, poets, producers, a dancer and a weaver. We're going to be discussing how they started in their profession, obstacles they have faced along the way, how they've been impacted by the pandemic, the importance of creativity in their lives, their influences, how they stay motivated to keep creating and most importantly, how you, the listener, can support their work. We want to make audiences all around the world aware of the constant stream of Roscommon-based creative work. And we also hope this series might encourage some of you to support local art, recognise its necessity and maybe even pursue some creative endeavours of your own. This series comes to you thanks to the generous support of Roscommon County Council, who have kindly commissioned this series and endorsed us with the necessary equipment and software to record the interviews safely and remotely during the summer of 2021. This conversation marks the final episode in our Inquire series. This week we are joined by award-winning Cavan writer Michael Harding. Michael worked as a teacher, a prison social worker and as a priest before leaving the priesthood and studying Buddhism for a few years. Michael is a regular columnist with the Irish Times and has written memoirs, novels, plays and has toured the country doing live talks on his books. Michael has also worked as an actor on screen and on stage and has performed as the Bull McCabe in the field. You can listen to his podcast, The Michael Harding Podcast, on Spotify, Patreon and Audible. In this episode, Michael talks to me about work, mental health, theatre, God and masculinity. This is an enveloping and philosophical conversation that gracefully fails to understand what it means to be human, like all good theatre should. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on to chat to me and for sharing your wisdom and eloquent musings with us. Please enjoy the chat and I'll catch you at the end for a few more updates. Hello, Michael Harding. Hello, Molly. Lovely to be with you. Thanks very much for joining us today. We had to jump through a good few hoops to get together, even online, but we've made it in the end. Yes. Where um, are you Where are you joining us from today, Michael? Did you say from, you were in Donegal? Yeah, I'm, I'm in West Donegal today, uh, near Carrick Finn Airport and near Annegree. The town of Anagram, a little place called Ranafast, Ranafarish. Oh, yeah. 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 And are you working on something there at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on another book. I just keep working. So um, I come up here as a kind of a bolt hole, you know, to kind of get full isolation so I can write. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So when you write, you say you look for full isolation. How does that help you in your in your writing process? Well, if the phone isn't going and you're not being distracted by stuff, you'll yeah. uh, you'll have hours in the day to write. Yeah. It's as simple as that. There's there was a great artist. I don't know who she was. She's an American woman, but she used to say, um, "The only way to do art is to show up." Mm. Right. So what she meant was that a lot of people 
a lot of people are kind of very intermittent about about work creatively. So mm. they'll say, um, you know, I'm a painter or I'm a writer. Uh, and you say, well, what are you working? Well, I'm not really working on anything at the moment, you know. And and that's going to get you nowhere. Uh, her yeah. point was that you need to show up like every day, every morning, like in your studio, you show up. It's not because you ha you know what you're going to do. It's not because you have a plan. It's, it's like you show up the way you'd show up for the boss man if you were working for somebody. You just mm. show up. And if you show up all the time, the work will do itself. It yeah. will happen because you're available to it, you know, yeah. and I, I'm a believer in that all my writing life since I started in 1985, you know, mm. show up. Uh, so so I come here to, to just, yeah, if there's no other distractions and I wake up in the morning, I have a coffee or a bit of porridge in the winter. Um, Something will happen. You're looking at a yeah. blank screen. You go get bored out of your head until you start writing something. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's often when the best stuff comes when you when you feel like the bowl is empty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I watched an interview with you last night, and in it you said that the changing of the seasons it doesn't depress you anymore. You feel like. In the changing of the seasons, there's something being said by the cosmos. I think you use yeah. that. And how are you finding the changing of the seasons right now? Because I'm I'm loving if... it. Okay. Yeah, I'm really loving it. Um, well, I, I'm loving being alive at the moment because I went through a period from about 2011 for about four or five years. Uh, I went through a period of depression and I had never suffered depression before. I mean, I had, had lived a normal life up to that. It was, what's that? I was like nearly 60. And all of a sudden, I got whacked with uh, real, real depression, like real a sense that you didn't want to get out of bed. You, you know, you really didn't. Every morning was a struggle. Um, and I didn't know where it came from. And... Uh, you know, those those were times where I actually dreaded those winters in, you know, 2011, 12, 13, 14 and 15, which was probably the very worst of them. Um, I really dreaded them. And I remember in 2015, uh, because my wife was in in Warsaw that year, she's she's an Irish woman, an artist, but she was working in the museum uh, on an icon, a religious icon and uh, doing it for the museum. She, she was part of a restoration program. And um, so she was away. And plan was I'd go out and visit her uh, in November and December. And like, I kind of booked three flights in September so that I'd go out the end of October, the end of November and the end of December, that kind of thing. And that'd be only like four weeks each time. And um the first, the first moment came, the first plane ride came and uh, it was early in the morning. I was going to, was going to drive up to Dublin. It was at nine, 9.30 it goes from Dublin to Warsaw. I was going to drive up from Leitrim and um, I was so stressed for about two days thinking, how will I cope with this? You know, how will I, how will I cope talking to people if I have to stop at a filling station for petrol 
or coffee. And uh, it got so bad that I couldn't sleep the night before the flight. And about about seven or six o'clock in the morning, I had to phone her and say, uh, I can't make it. I'm not getting on that plane. I, I couldn't do it. Lost the money, lost the, the meeting with her and all that because I just couldn't do it. So mm. so that was the level of um, of melancholy, a depression I was in at that time. Yeah. And that lifted. Around 2016, that lifted. And it's never come back. And I'm back the way I was. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm melancholy. I like a little melancholy. I like a little sorrow. Yeah. I like it. I like Leonard Cohen. I think he's a beautiful poet, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. I like, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful phrase, and you may even know it. I don't know if you do, per tenebras at lucem. That it means light comes through shadows. I like that. That's and, Latin, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, so now, if you see what I'm saying, I'm really loving, I'm really loving the change of seasons because I'm not suffering that depression. I do yeah. take vitamin D. Oh, that's very important. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we all should be at that in Ireland. But the other that's thing right. is, you see, uh, I did hit a lot of physical ill health at the same time. 2011 to 2020. I had about 10 years of one operation after another and they really couldn't find out what was wrong until last year. And last year they did an oh. operation and they, they sorted out arteries in my spine. And I think that fixed everything, do you know? Yeah. So I think that I had physic an underlying physical condition way back in 2011 and that was pulling me down physically but mentally and i think it's worth saying as well for people if they are suffering depression you know it's really worth checking with your gp yeah in case you do have some minor minor underlying condition it might be a, an infection or something or whatever I, I had a serious one uh so anyway i am in much better form now that's great. That's great. And in the period after your depression, is that where the burst of writing came from? No, I, I've, the writing has gone on, as I say, 1985, I began writing full time. I, I had already, I had already published a lot of poetry in a page called New Irish Writing, which was ed edited by David Marcus in the Irish press. And I had already won a Hennessy Award for short stories at that time. But in, in 1985, I decided that I was going to give up the job, the day job, and write. And what I was saying earlier about the principle to show up is something that I think has to be as disciplined as, as if you were a monk. Okay. And it, it involves sacrifices you don't fit it in between social events and you don't say to yourself well you know actually i'm busy with this other stuff for the next week yeah. so i won't be doing you, you really have to work at writing and it's not that you're doing the work you're just showing up so yeah. i started doing that in in 1985 i was living in dublin in cowper street in stony batter i had a little house there and renton and uh 
God, I, I, I used to show up and it, it wasn't pleasant, you know. I'd be looking at a blank screen. Uh, in those days, it was a blank page on a typewriter. And uh, I used to think I was an awful fool to give up my job, you know. <laughs> I had a lovely job being a being a religious a curate in a parish, you know. Sure, yeah. you were well looked after, lovely house, plenty good food, no bother, people to talk to, you know. Yeah. I thought I should have stayed where the fuck I was. So, so you still show up every day, and then I've I've been writing since, and the burst of work it comes. I mean, I've done. I suppose I I did at that time around twenty plays for different theatre companies around the country. Yeah. And I did five of them for the Abbey in Dublin. And I did three novels then. Uh, and then I started doing one man shows. And then I started doing memoirs. Yeah. So I've really, I try and produce something every year. I try and produce, whether it's a play or a book, over those 38, nearly 40 years. I've always, every year, I've I've always produced something. Yeah. Like it might be, it might be a book with a a big company or it might be a theatre piece with a, you know, a small little company like Theatre Omnibus in Clare or something. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I take a very old-fashioned work ethic attitude, you know. Yeah. Well, that suits some people. And, yeah, it's it's. I just want to ask you for a second about the playwriting and mm. your work in... Because I know you've worked as an actor. Yeah. So I wonder, what is your... How do you get into a character's shoes? And even if you're writing... That car, if whether you're playing it or writing it, mm. how do you, how do you create the world mm. of the play that you're writing? I think that there's there's a lot of emphasis uh, in what I'd call Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American theatre. There's a lot of English language theatre. There's a lot of emphasis on psychology. And characters and psychobabble. You know, a lot ninety nine percent of the plays kind of the come out of Britain or America, they're they're about people talking at each other on a stage and and pretending it's ordinary life and then pretending they're kind of real people. So that you go you go to the theatre and, and, and you see your drawing room on the fucking stage, you know. Sorry for the language. It's all right, don't worry about it. Uh, some podcasts you're allowed use a liberality of words. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying is that this this kind of world of theatre in the Anglo-Saxon world is kind of caged in a psychological worldview. And I very deeply come from a space that tries to fragment that and do something that's fundamentally different. What's fundamentally different, number one, is ritual. So I love theatre that's about ritual, I love theatre about dance. I mean, I've worked with, for example, Shiamsa and Kerry, Shiamsa Chira. I wrote two shows for them, and I performed in one of them with Shiamsa. I, I felt it a great honour. I was like a Shiamsa, you know, they're dancers. I'm an old fella, but I really had great fun with it. Um, and and using music and using ritual to tell stories, to me, is 
is much more powerful than getting caught in this psychobabble, this kind of cage of psychology, which is a real 20th century mm. stuff, right? So when I prepare for a character, I prepare by meditating, to be honest. Uh, if I was doing, if I was involved in a theatre piece, uh, I would really try and get into some sort of single pointed meditation on a daily basis. And then when it would be coming towards the show, I would use it as the warm up. And I would use a bit of Tai Chi mm. as a warm up. And then I would try and follow the principle, be here now, be, be present in this moment, in this sentence. And and that's what Shakespeare has a lovely advice, you know, that he gives through Hamlet when Hamlet is talking to the actors. Yes. He says, speak the speech trippingly off the tongue. Just say the words. That's all you need to do, you know. When I go to the theatre and I see an actor who's really, really acting, their socks off, right? And they're like, you know, they're let's say they're playing the drunk or they're playing the, you know, the whatever would say drunk and you're looking at them and you're thinking that I, I if I met him outside or her outside I absolutely there's no question that is real really yeah. drunk. he's an amazing actor and you go out into the into the fire at the break and you're talking to other people and everybody's saying god she's an amazing actress or actor right and it seems to me misplaced it's like it's like you don't need to act it's the opposite you need to do if you want the play to work in people's hearts. If you mm. want people to open up to the story and swallow the story emotionally. Just say the words. So. And the words will bring you to the place. Obviously, if the text is Tennessee Williams and there's you're playing somebody who's drinking or has a, a, an issue. Of course, of course, if you if you play the words truly. Mm. You will find yourself in the space. But but when it's over, you, you're not going around with a kind of a, a whole lot of intellectual stuff in your head about the character. Mm. You know, I think she's this kind of character. You're just saying, I don't know what happens. I just go out and say the words. Yeah. And and I re there, there is a tradition of that that's that's very, very strong in Europe. Uh, and there's a tradition of it that is strong in, in British theatre as well. The great person would be Peter Brook. Yeah. You know, um, and Peter Brook's stuff is absolutely to get the actor to just stop acting. Mm. And I used to go to the, what do you call it, the Bouffe de Nord, that theatre in, in Paris, near the Gare de Nord, where Peter Brook puts on his shows. And I remember spending about three months in Paris, and I used to go every Friday night. I used to go sometimes Friday night and then a matinee on a Sunday. It'd be the same show and I'd see the show twice. And it was like, I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe that I was so lucky to be in this theatre watching these, what I would consider like masters, masters of 20th century theatre. People like, um, what's his name? Ishiguro. Is that his name? I'm not sure. He's a Japanese actor. He works with. Peter Brook. But but watching these masters of theatre and I was paying like I think about five or seven euros for a show, you know. Uh 
So, so I'm just saying that there's a huge tradition of making theatre which is not trapped in the psychological and yeah. doesn't ask questions about the character because because it's really mystery. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like what can you say about Beckett's Vladimir and Estragon? You, you can't say what kind of characters are there. Yeah. And, and yet they're more real as 20th century theatrical presences than any other yeah. play. Yeah. Every other play gets trapped in time and in psychology. But but Beckett doesn't because he understood European theatre. He understood be here now. Just allow the the person to be present. Yeah. That kind I of think thing. yeah, that's 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 I think generally with modern plays, I think audiences just get very uncomfortable with this sense of meaninglessness. And I think with this 20th, 20th century psychology, we love to draw conclusions and meanings and answers from things. And it's very comforting for us. And I think the, a real challenge for playwrights nowadays is to create something that doesn't offer audiences meaning, that allows audiences to be comfortable without meaning. How do you think that that's something that we're moving towards or away from? Well, I, I certainly agree with you. I, I certainly agree with you that... Uh, that yes, sometimes audiences are uncomfortable with a lack of meaning. Uh, the conclusion I would draw from that is to encourage playwrights to continue in the same direction of meaninglessness. Yeah. In other words, it is a very good thing to make the audience uncomfortable. Yeah. If the audience is just being entertained at a bland level, if 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 it's something they do you know, for periods of 40 minutes to, just to have wine beforehand and afterhand, then <laughs> you're kind of wasting your life in theatre. Yeah. And and you can waste your life in theatre. Nowhere better to waste your life. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. It's such a place of delusions. Yeah. You know, it's an appalling place of delusions. Uh, you have to be very strong and you have to approach theatre at a deeply spiritual level. You have yeah. to say, I want to share with you the mystery of being alive. That that, yeah. that is what's the sacred consciousness. And I want to share this with you. And I will do this ritual. I will do this play. I will write this play, whatever. But I will try and give both of us a vehicle. You as an audience, me as an author, me as an actor, three of us. Um, but we will all enter into the moment together. You know, and, and that again is the difference. Peter Brooks, you know, Peter Brooks wrote a book called The Empty, what was it called? The Empty Space. Yeah. And and he just denounces that psychobabble theatre of, you know, throwing up meaningful replications of ordinary life on stage and then people coming in and being entertained because they're kind of looking at themselves in an ordinary drawing room. Yeah. With a bit of a row, you know. We're at Mammy's funeral and everybody has a row. Like, like we're wasting our time here. Mm. And that's what Peter Brook would say. And that he would say that the empty space is this almost metaphysical reality. It, it's a consciousness we have of space. When we're alone, when we're with people, our most beautiful self comes to the surface when we're in an empty space in our mind. 
Yeah. And and so theatre is about inviting an audience into that space. Mm. So so when I remember working with um, Judy Hegarty, who who's in Garçon Lazar, they do a lot of Beckett. Connor Lovett is the actor, and she's his partner, and you know she directs the shows. But they got me. I wrote a play for them, and I performed in it, and she was directing it. And uh, I remember at the very beginning the text. I was speaking the first few words of the play and I says to Judy, I'm not sure about this, Judy. I mean, the audience won't know why he's suddenly jumping in and saying this, right? And she said, that's good. You know, audience don't know what's happening. Very good. Yeah. We, we tend to think the opposite. We, we tend to be like teachers mm. and we turn, we turn theatre into sort of some kind of educational drama yeah. about some social issue. And yeah. and if you look today, if you checked all the plays being done in Ireland today, you'd find they're all about some very contemporary issue. Yeah. And if you went back five years, you'd find the same and 10 years the same. The only difference is the contemporary issues are on, out of fashion now from five years ago. So are yeah. the plays. Do you know what I mean? So I un unless you're really inviting people into that space which is a place of mystery and and the most beautiful times in theater are when you're looking at the stage and you and you really don't know what the guy's going to do next the yeah. same way as a human being in the bar is interesting when you don't know what he's going to do next when there's a kind of a sense of mystery yeah if, if you're sitting there looking at him and saying you know i know i know his that fella's five next moves he is such a cliche well, you, you don't, you don't enjoy that. You wouldn't pay money to be with him. And it's yeah. the same in theatre. So, so, so when plays are absolutely surprising and mysterious, and it, it doesn't mean that they're kind of propagating meaninglessness as the alternative to meaning, mm. because that would be just a kind of an immature negative image, you know, mm. and you do get that maybe in undergraduate theatre a lot, do you know what I mean? Certainly in my time, way back in the 80s, Beckett was very fashionable and, you know, the, all the students would be doing plays and they'd be always Beckettian, you know, very mm. Beckettian. There'd be characters coming out in big long coats, you know, and saying things <laughs> that nobody understood. <laughs> I did it myself, you know. Yeah. But that, that was actually trying to push the idea of life is meaningless. Right. Which, of course, is a very meaningful thing to say. Yeah. You know, if somebody is propagating an ideology, their fist is clenched. But then if somebody is saying, ideologies are a load of crap, their fist is clenched too. Yeah. So the only time you open your fist, open your heart, is when you're saying, I really don't know the answer to anything. Yeah. And that's the space. Not an easy thing to do to actually, yeah. you know, to create that in theatre. And and I'll I'll finish. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm going on too long. But no, I just it's love, brilliant. Please I love theatre. Yeah. But you see, people forget. They talk about playwrights. Oh, I'm a playwright. What are you doing? I'm writing a play. Now they actually make. I've first. I've three drafts done. I'm going to do the next draft tomorrow. Right? That'd be like okay. 
But playwright is, is P-L-A-Y-W-R-I-G-H-T. It doesn't mean writing at all. doesn't mean it. Mm. It has it nothing to do with text, computers, typewriters or words in a page. When you mm. say, I'm a playwright. You're saying it in the same way as somebody, as somebody would say, I'm a shipwright. Now, a shipwright is a person who makes a ship. And it's a very physical thing. The shipwright is, is, is the guy who's bending the wood and shaving the wood and, and making, a, making a prow and getting the measurements right of the prow so that it will go through the water. Mm. All that kind of crack. It's a, it's a physical shaping. That's, you look at your gates in front of your house maybe and you say, oh, they're wrought iron. Wrought iron? What's wrought iron? It's done by a, a, somebody who writes the iron, who shapes the iron. Yeah. Past tense, the word is to wrought. I wrought it. But the playwright writes it. But he doesn't W-R-I-T-E, or she doesn't W-R-I-T-E. They, she, W-R-I-G-H-T. So, so making a play is a physical thing. It's like Tai Chi. It's like a meditation. It's like... How do I physically do this? Mm. When you talk about meditation, there, it reminds me that. So generally, I feel that my generation are quite disconnected from religion, mm. but it's becoming fashionable to meditate and do mm. yoga and do things like go vegan. And mm. I can't help but think, because we're a different generation, but we're still human, is this just our way of replacing religion with a type of lifestyle or a type of belief system? I'd love to know what you think about that. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I think that when you talk about religion, you're probably talking about institutions yeah i suppose so i think in in general my generation would see it through a lens of institution mm. and and that's all that's the only thing what's happening i think in the west is that institutions religious institutions have been on the wane in decline for about 200 years and they held on in places like ireland right into the end of the 20th century. Now, if you if you look at some of the stuff in Europe, it, it, it was a no-brainer to know that won't last. I remember, I remember talking about uh, when the Pope came to Ireland, like the first, whatever, John Paul II, way back, 1989, 1979. Wow, I'm a very old person. But I remember saying it was really like a funeral. You know, people thought this is going to be a great revival of Catholicism, but it was to me like a few, it was the last big hurrah of Catholicism. And, and it proved that that was the case, you know, because everything went into complete freefall after that and went into 
you know, complete moral chaos so that it lost all its moral credibility as an institution. Now, that was something that was happening all over Europe and gradually and inevitable from the time of the Enlightenment, from the time of, you know, all the great thinkers in the 19th century, whether it was Marx or Freud or Carl Jung or what's the other fella? Darwin, right? So so this was going to happen. The, the institutions could no longer contain the, the wisdom, if you like, mm. of being human. But it, it doesn't mean that the wisdom of being human has been scattered. Mm. No, no more than in, if you think about Tibet, the institutions, the religious institutions in, in Tibet have been destroyed in a different way, you know, in a political context. But it still doesn't mean that the kind of wisdom and truth has been lost. It, it, yeah. it simply, it, it's like, it's like you have something, in a beautiful nectar in a vase and you break the vase and the nectar flows all over the place. It, it, they're, they're two separate things. The glass is broken. The vase is broken. And in, in Western terms, the Christian institutions are shattered. They're like in bits on the floor. But, but they, they were only containing a truth, a wisdom, I should say. And I think that wisdom is simply the inheritance of every human being who gets born. And, and it's what makes me, you know, hugely joyful, I suppose, about young people because they just find it again. It's like it, the world goes on. It's not going to stop. Mm. And, and, and young people will find new ways, new grammar to express the mystery of being here, mm. to, to what is sacred. Every, every young person, China, Ireland, wherever, they, they know what is sacred. They know that there is yeah. a sacredness in being alive. They're conscious. And, and depending on your cultural background, you might end up, you might end up going to mass, which is a very good thing to do. But you also mm. might end up doing meditation in a Tibetan Buddhist center, you know, whatever, whatever is there you're going to use to yeah. awaken. Yeah. Um, we sort of know each other indirectly. We've known each other for thousands of years. That's true. But in a more recent sense, um, in this lifetime, in this lifetime, you knew um, my godmother, Reed Connolly, and her yes. cousin, Maggie Brown, as she would have been back then. And I would love to know, can you describe for me what living in Dublin in the 80s, what did the air feel like? What was going on? Who were you back then? Well, the air was cleaner, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, there was less diesel in the air. Really? Yeah. Um, you could cycle home from... You know, Grogan's on a bicycle. Where was Grogan's now? Grogan's, the Castle Inn, it's, it's still a, a really very lively cultural venue uh, off the back of Grafton Street. Okay. Um, terribly famous for writers in the 50s and 60s. Paddy Cavan, all them used to drink yeah. there. And then 
And and then it became an art college. All the young artist students took it over in around the 80s and 90s. But anyway, um, you could cycle from there back to, to Dundrum at night. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't be afraid, you know. I think that people talk about like violence in Dublin now and the sense that women are intimidated, young women are intimidated. And I think that's absolutely terrible. And it is the responsibility of men to talk to men about it. And, you know, young boys should get a good slap and try and be taught to be responsible young men. The problem is, again, we've thrown out the religious institutions. We haven't actually developed a new system. Mm. So nobody knows how to do this. You know, if, if young fellas grow up feral, kind of half wild, if you like, because they have no ethical responsibilities, they have no sense of morality, they have no sense of um, responsibility in relation to relationships. Yeah. I mean, they really don't. It's it's like, you know, we've, we you know, women have got control of their fertility, so that's their problem, and we can just enjoy ourselves. And um, somebody <laughs> needs to come up with an alternative to that yeah, before the boys get completely out of control. And uh, and they are a bit out of control, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what I'm saying is, in, in those days, a woman or a man, me and me, partner at the time, could cycle out to Dundrum. And it, it didn't feel like threatening. Whereas even now, I'd be afraid to cycle out around the city centre because you see on the pavement, you know, guys would be coming out of clubs and, and stuff and they're really like, they're very much like packs, you know. Mm. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's a big, that's a difference. Um, the politics was very dark because the, wor the country was very poor. The European Union didn't, hadn't put in all the infrastructure that's there now. And uh, so, in other words, Sligo was further from Dublin than it is now. Yeah. You know, it was like, I don't know how long it was to drive, but by God, you'd be exhausted after you'd gone through every single town in an old Cortina, you know. Um, and and the idea of electric cars would have been science fiction to us, you know. Yeah. And then the politics in the north was very, very kind of, you know, it was reverberating everywhere from the hunger strikes in 1981 past the following seven or eight years. Now, I'd be more aware of it because I'd lived in Fermanagh. Yeah. But what I was aware of was how ignorant people in the South were about the North because there was basically censorship. So the airwaves were completely censored. Nobody could, could hear any Republican speaking directly to the camera mm. for 30 years nearly. Um, and that had a bad influence, I think. It, it, it didn't help peace. I think it yeah. had the other effect because it allowed the North to go off on its own lunatic trajectory. Whereas nowadays, there's a more integrated conversation going on on the island and everybody has to be more responsible. Yeah. You know. When you talk there about um, 
young boys not having the sense of responsibility. It reminded me of, um, I think you wrote in On Tuesdays I'm a Buddhist that this new, fa- like, I suppose it's not new, but this, like, generally society is becoming more aware of patriarchy mm. and there's this conversation happening about toxic masculinity mm. and you ask the very worthwhile question of, well, what what is positive masculinity and how can we, um, you know, how can we find it and talk about it? And I wonder, mm. since writing that, what are your thoughts on it now? Well, I, I think that men are beautiful. So uh, do I. And young men are astonishingly beautiful. And I think that when I talked there earlier, I'm simply saying that, you know, young lads, if they've no control, no leadership, if they've no vision, then they will they will try things that don't work. You know, they will they will try too much drugs that doesn't work, that makes them more unhappy than anything else. And they will try and think about relationships as sort of domination in ways that will lead them to disaster and lead their girlfriends to disaster, right? But how how do you find a way to share with young men that they are beautiful because they're beautifully on, on the inside? Not because they're strong, not because they're sexually potent, not because they have money, not because they're funny, but because there's something invisible in the heart that makes a young man beautiful. Mm. And I think it's to do with a, a young man's hope. Do you know, if, if you see a young person, a young man we're talking about, I suppose, with a sense of vision, you know, a sense of a dream he, that he wants to create a paradiso, you know, for himself or for somebody else, for a, for a partner or for a child or whatever that, that he wants, you can see that he's dedicated his life to somebody else. That's a man that's found the sacred. And mm. that's a young man who's found what is peaceful inside. And that's a young man who's beautiful. Mm. And there, there's nothing toxic about that. Yeah. You know, that, that's a beautiful thing. Like, yeah. I honestly, there's, I, 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 young men are, when they're at their best, they're astonishing. They do anything for you. Yeah. They can have a clarity that says, this person, she needs this. I'm going to do this. And, and that is the way. Bob Dylan, you know, he says, you got to serve somebody. Yeah. A, 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 male, a male thinks of serving a woman. There's a crazy old-fashioned idea. <laughs> but if you wake up in the morning and say, the entirety of my day is to make my beloved woman happy. Nothing else matters. Mm. Well, you'll find that you, that's happiness. That, that That is, in some sense, in a strange way, it's the kind of thing that gives men real deep happiness. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't, they don't get the, they don't get the joy that a woman might get from a child in the way of gestation and birth and nurturing mm. and nursing. They don't get that, but but they do get 
there is something almost that corresponds to it, which is a sense of service. Yeah. And and it you know I've I meet. I've met men over all my life, like working in football clubs, working in youth clubs, working in charity, working in soup kitchens, or just working, you know, working out there on the road, doing a drain to get better pipes in for the house that he's living in with his lady wife. A male in that sense focused on who am I serving? And I'm serving a woman or a, a family or a partner, whatever, or a wife, whatever. That's a beautiful thing. And when that when that is not tapped into, the danger is that the the need to find someone to serve is transferred onto darker forces. Yeah. And then you'll get young lads who will become completely obsessed by some ideology. You know, some political agenda or some political uh, project. And you'll find them with their placards or leaflets or whatever. And it's like they're glazed over. You know, their soul is gone because they, they believe this is the way to serve. But it's, it's not. They're only serving a kind of an idea rather than the heart. Okay. Right. No. Uh, <laughs> that's something. That's something to think about. Um, sure, it's probably not true. I'd be talking nonsense, you know. No, I understand what you're saying. It's just, mm. uh, and it, like, you know, thinking about it there, I can kind of see it in like the men that I know in my own life, how mm. like that, that sense of purpose that comes through when it's, there's something to serve. But yeah. does it always, <coughs> excuse me, does it always have to be a someone else or can it be something like a football club or a Cayley band? Or even well, God, do you know? Yeah, but I, I think that when you serve another person, I suppose I would say another sentient being. You know, I'd, I think, I think I'd widen it to a sentient being. Okay. And maybe even eventually we'll be some co we'll we'll widen it to include trees as well and foliage, but yeah. and maybe the planet. But anyway, where where it all becomes very focused and very simple is in another human being. Yeah. I think it can be equally served. I I I remember at times in my life when being very lonely and alone and getting enormous reward from a relationship with a cat yeah and i really mean it i mean you know i i remember you know dark mornings when the cat's affection would lift me yeah. but i think that a human being they say in in uh, in tibet they say it's the only realm in which awareness of suffering can lead to the motivation to be free from suffering we, we have this little trigger in the human consciousness that actually allows us to say, you know, I'm suffering in this. And if I do something else, I will cease to suffer. Yeah, th th that's a real big step. And I think that when I'm not saying that, like, ideologically, you serve women, obviously not, especially like a gay relationship, you're serving your wife, whatever. 
but what I'm saying is the other, the other that you meet in your lover is more than just your lover. It is, it is God. It is, it is really, God is a Western word for it. They, they might yeah. say the enlightened, they would say the enlightened Buddha in many Asian countries. You are meeting Buddha. You are meeting the Lord. You are meeting the mystery of the universe of being alive is coming to you in this person. And and that again is going back to the thing in theatre about that space. That sacred space is what Peter Brook talks about. That, that create with the audience, the actor and the author, a sense that, that we're all in a present moment in this theatre that is mysterious. It, it's the sacred. Yeah. Peter Brook used to say, you can't play Shakespeare if you don't believe in God. He used to say that to actors and mean it. You, how can you say these words if you if you don't go away and, and just think about this and and see that your heart does open to the mystery yeah. of what being here existentially is? It's it's a mystery that is beautiful. Yeah. So so what we do is we tend in partnership to lay, to lay this on another person. Not because we want to deify them, but simply because we want to release ourselves from our own ego. Yeah. So when I'm doing this for you, I'm not thinking about me. Yeah. And that's happiness. To do something for somebody else. Yeah. When you when you talk about that sacred empty space that Peter Brook talks about hmm. and to to perform Shakespeare you have to believe in God. I think just generally from observing my own mind and other people my own age, I think we're so separated from an idea of God because generally our education around therapy and self-care is so separated from anything sacred or holy or even anything mm. ritualistic. Yeah. So as an actor myself, it's it's something that I have to work really hard towards and I have to read a lot about yeah. to have any kind of feeling of holiness or God or um, sacredness yeah. to really kind of unlock the magic in theatre for myself. Yeah. So what would you say to someone like myself or other people who are kind of so locked in this way of functioning that it's so, it feels impossible to find any sense of God? Yeah, I, I would... And you said it very eloquently. I mean, that really sums it up, what you've just said, uh, the sense of, you know, disaffection or not disaffection, but disconnect, di disconnectedness. A sense that like you're, you're trapped, that your generation is trapped in a secular cosmos. Yeah. A rational cosmos, an intellectually reasonable cosmos. Yeah, but, but it as a way to help us survive. But it has no kind of exit doors. Yeah, You can't get out of the fucking thing. You're stuck yeah. in it with all this kind of realism. And then and then when you die, you die. That's it. Yeah. The, the old monitor goes flat, lines the heart, and that's it, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> He's not there anymore, he never was there. And so how do you... Okay, well, what I'd say to you is I think that it's only the idea of God you know, that you're disconnected from. 
it's only it like Nietzsche Nietzsche started this stuff about God is dead but he, he what people forget is Nietzsche was kind of saying it, it wouldn't it would be an appalling idea like this will be a mess it's a not a good idea that God is dead that was Nietzsche's position yeah. sometimes when I was young and students would be would be using it very fashionably like oh God is dead it's great book. <laughs> You know, as if we had, as if we had won the argument as yeah. secularists or Marxists or whatever, but r really he was observing that culturally this kind of idea, this concept, was dying, and so he was correctly predicting that a generation like yours would come along and feel it's not for us anymore. The consequence is that you might feel disconnected or think you're disconnected or talk about being disconnected from the idea of God. But I think, I feel that your generation is is just awash with God. God is in your fingertips. God, the sacred is glowing in young people. And uh, I see them surfing. I see them falling in love. I, f I see them dancing. I, I see them like, you know, joyfully going wild at, at parties. Young people are alive. They're wildly alive. And that also is God. Mm. You know, the, the word of God is just a word and institutions are dying and concepts of God are dying but the experience of this eternal mystery of love that's that's alive and well yeah I think and I think that you know I, I can't say anything further like how how young people will find ways to ritualize the sacred you know in the next 50 years in western culture will they will they begin to evolve patterns of, you know, meditation or, you know, mindfulness or, or will they kind of grip Buddhist ideas and rituals strongly or will they, will they invent new rituals out of theatre and out of community groups? Mm. What, what will, and, and where will women take a central role in that? And maybe, maybe women will kind of, in the kind of, the end of the Christian institutions, you might find that, there's a whole lot of ways that that space will be claimed by women yeah, and become a very, very strong woman's space as, as kind of the kind of protectors of the Jesus story and the Jesus presence. Mm. That's very possible. I haven't Absolutely. a clue, but I wouldn't doubt that the human species will continue to go on falling in love with each other. Yeah. And that's called God. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely, Michael. Mm. Um, just to finish up, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about your podcast and maybe also a little bit about where we can keep up with you or get any news updates on you? Yeah. Um, my podcast is called the Michael Harding Podcast and it's on Patreon.com and you can get it, I think, on Spotify and YouTube and some of the other platforms, yeah. iTunes or whatever. Sometimes you don't, but if you're if you're having difficulty, you'd go straight to patreon.com. And it's very similar to what I'm doing here. 
which is kind of just talking endlessly about <laughs> nothing. And I do talk with great enthusiasm about the beauties of religion, of faith, as, as ritual. I just find it beautiful. I find it consoling. I find it magical. I find it like there's places in my heart that cannot come out in rational language. But when I light a candle in a church in front of uh, an icon, I can feel the place inside me resonating. Yeah. So there's, there's something deeply human. And, and I celebrate with joy the whole Christian thing. And I also celebrate with joy the, the Buddhist thing, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, because it was a great help. So I rant along about religion and I rant along about how I know nothing about anything. And I tell some stories and it's like, yeah, it's about an hour every weekend. Yeah. And what I love about it as well is that you'll often open with a, a seemingly ordinary story about you encountering uh, encountering a stranger in, in Cavan or in Leitrim and having a chat along the road. And yeah. then it turns into this beautiful, complex, existential, philosophical idea. Yeah, I do. I get carried away <laughs> or I get sidetracked. And that, that really is, that's the key to, to the podcast, I suppose. That, yeah. Yeah, I do try and... Yeah. yeah, stories where you like, start, you know. It's like a version of Mass. <laughs> it's great. Well, that'll surely get me hundreds <laughs> of listeners. It's modern day Mass. Modern day Mass. Possible. Listen, I think that's a great idea. I might even use that as an ad for it. Do, do, and you can credit me. <laughs> modern day Mass is Molly. <laughs> Michael, yeah, thank you so much. No, for, thank you. For coming thank on Thank you, today. Molly. It's been lovely being with you and all your listeners. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. There you have it, lads. That beautiful conversation with Michael Harding and our final episode of the Inquire series. You can keep up with Michael's podcast on Twitter, at HardingMichael. You can find his podcast, the Michael Harding podcast, on Spotify, Patreon and Audible. You can find his columns in the Irish Times. His newest book, A Cloud Where the Birds Rise, is available to buy now. It is a collaboration with illustrator Jacob Stack, where Michael's most memorable musings on the human condition are brought to life by art. You can find our podcast, In Fairness, on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. You can hear more from us and our interviewees on our Instagram, at InFairnessPod, it's the same on Twitter, and In Fairness Podcast on Facebook. Feel free to get in touch on any of these platforms with any questions or suggestions that you may have for us. Thank you again to Roscommon County Council for supporting us to create this series, and to our wonderful mentor, Catherine Sheridan, for keeping us in check and bringing us both together at the very beginning of our journey. You have been listening to In Fairness Inquire Roscommon Artists. Research, questions, sound engineering and co-producing by Molly Mew. Editing and producing by Misha Fitzgibbon. Just to send you off, we've decided to throw in the final mixed version of Rose and Star. It's a song penned by my brother Ruan about... Me and Misha and the chats that we have on our podcast and our hopes and dreams. This was a huge project for us and for our podcast and we're both working so we're not sure when we're going to get together to record again. So we thought we'd send you off with this and yeah, this is by my brother Ruan Mew. I manage his music pages. You can find him on Instagram, Ru Mew. He's also on Patreon and he writes really gorgeous, nostalgic, meaningful music like this if you want to hear more of it. But for now... Um, thank you.
thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the week and just thank you so much for being with us throughout this project it's been so much fun thank you so much for listening and have a gorgeous rest of the week I miss you Chips in the rain and go away town We had to take away because you can't sit down And it's lashing But I can't stop laughing Life in three dimensions Life in long suspension That's who we